we'll be looking at apologetics. I have this feeling it would not be a short series. Um, but we're going to go over apologetics tonight. We're going to be the introduction of apologetics, okay? Introduction to apologetics. And the reason why I want to go over the introduction for apologetics is, um, is twofold. The reason uh, why is I want to go over this is, um, is because, number one, is to introduce. If, you don't know, if we don't know what it is and why, then it becomes every week I don't want it with people in their minds say, oh, I don't like this or whatever, then, then they, it, you don't get anything out of it. But we want to look biblically. Why? What is apologetics and why is it important? Okay, I want to stress the key word is biblically. Uh, the key word is biblically. Okay, uh, we'll talk about this even unpacking this even more as we go on. And the second reason uh, why I want to go over this is also as well, just even for our life. When we evangelize, um, there'll be eventually we will meet non-believers and we probably have already as we mature in the faith. Evangelize. There's people that do not believe in the gospel and they could also be hostile and they could also press you for reasons um for why you believe what you believe and i hope this is helpful to make you think okay that we have a duty not only to go out there to evangelize but also i think we have a responsibility as we even later look on first peter three fifteen. i want to even I, I know i'm jumping the gun stealing the thunder ahead of time but even first peter three fifteen makes the um i think the implication of that is even the duty to study to be able to defend your faith, okay? That studying to defend your faith is a continuous, constant um, discipline, okay? It's a continuous, constant discipline to learn, okay? Um, so in light of this, we're going to be looking at apologetics today is um, session one. I titled this Apologetics, colon, um, what and why, okay? What and why. Um, and I, even before we go on further, I want to ask you guys, you guys could answer me is, do you guys know what is apologetics? Who here... Uh, who here has not heard of what apologetics is? You guys could raise your hand. There's no shame in that, you know. Um, when I first heard of apologetics, I, I did not know what it was. I thought it was the opposite of what it sounds like. Okay, wait. Okay, raise your hand. Anyone else? Um, okay, and I know there's some of you guys that are like uh, really good with apologetics. Some of you guys are like constantly battling, duking things out with people every single day. Okay, like literally. Okay. Um, so for those that do know, what is apologetics? What is apologetics? Someone just, you could unmute. It means to defend. To defend. Okay, good. Okay. Um, you're stealing my point one already, but yeah, it means to defend. Okay. Um, so, and, okay. Uh, and also, if we know what it is, even for some of us that know what it is, some of us could even say, is this even important? Like, is it important? Um, not just only because of my opinion or subjective opinion or my personality I like arguing, therefore it's important, but also biblically, why is it important? Okay, so today, a lesson, we're going to see four truths. How many truths? Four truths, okay, to consider. Um, these four truths we're going to consider is going to answer the what it is and why we do this, okay? Why we engage in apologetics, okay? So that really want to stress this is, um, and the reason why I want to look at these four points is ultimately to application. We see the importance that we have a duty, responsibility to engage in apologetics ourselves in our personal lives when we witness to non-believers. But secondly, is also to establish why is this series important. Um, I hope this would actually encourage you to look forward and to not only look forward to this, but to even help pray, um, help me by praying for even our Tuesday series that will be most helpful both with us here online uh, in this study. And also, I hope you guys will be able to pray that even the audios would bless people and the outlines will bless people way beyond. Again, not for egotistical sake or anything else, but really because I feel um, our lives are short. Everything we want to do, we want to make the most impact for God's glory. Okay? So is the reason why with that. 
So these are going to be the four truths, okay? Um, some of them is going to be phrased in the form of questions, okay, that we'll answer. So point number one, truth number one we're going to ask is what is apologetics? What is apologetics, okay? What is apologetics? Again, what is apologetics? Point number two is why? Oh, actually, let me see. Yeah, why apologetics, okay? Point number two is why apologetics? Point number two is why apologetics? So you have to identify what it is first, then the reasons why biblically is important. And then point number three is gonna, we're gonna see two sides to apologetics. Two sides of apologetics. In light of answering the question, why do we do apologetics? You're gonna, you're gonna come out very clear that there's two types of apologetics, or there's two side of the coin of apologetics, if you will, okay? And then point number four, what apologetics is not? What apologetics is not? Um, why I wanna look at what apologetics is not is because sometimes people, when I, in the past when I've taught apologetics, people after going over apologetics, they'll say, I don't like this, I object to this, we shouldn't be doing this on college campuses. But then I ask them, okay, what is the reason why? Everything they describe what apologetics they think it means is actually what I don't think apologetics is, okay? So I think I wanna anticipate that, uh, um, to nip in the bud, if you will, objections to that by considering what apologetics is not, okay? Um, so in light of these four points, let me repeat them again for those taking notes. Point number one is what is apologetics? What is apologetics? Point number two, why apologetics? Why apologetics? Point number three, two sides of apologetics. Two sides of apologetics. And point number four, what apologetics is not. Uh, and let me say this real quick. Uh, I, I know tonight we have an audience that's pretty mixed. Some of you guys are pretty advanced in apologetics. Um, some of you guys really know re a lot. Some of us do not. Um, but even for those that I want to speak to those that do know a lot, um, I think apologetics is almost like martial arts. Um, it's something you want to regularly practice. Um, I know Mandy's husband is is a military man or, or was, you know. Um, I remember even seeing a picture where is, he's teaching a class with things. And it, it, it's uh, in the military world, it's a skill set, right? It's perishable. Um, just because you're veteran does not mean you would be good at something. It's something that you need to practice. And I even actually sometimes practice with others. Okay, you can't just throw a motley crew of, of a thousand guys and expect everyone to function as a battalion, right? No, it's not a functional battalion. If it doesn't have guys and guys that are practicing and also guys that are constantly learning. So even as I grow in apologetics, even as much as I love it, um, I always like reading two kinds of apologetics book. Is I like to read books that are very deep and in-depth. And the second one is sometimes I like to read basics, not because I think I'm basic, but also why I read that is also I want to go over the fundamentals again, right? Always going over the fundamentals um, because sometimes people could be, it's just like martial arts, some people could be focusing on all these crazy twists and turns, but then all of a sudden they meet a basic guy in a fight and then they, they're so busy trying to throw, you know, judo kicks and whatever else or rolling on the mat and then someone else just take them out with a simple, keeping basic to the fundamentals with that, okay? And secondly, also why I read a lot of basic books is also I want to be able to be able to engage two kinds of people. The guys that are really advanced atheists or, or even critics of apologetics method. And some, some of you guys in the apologetics group have seen like recently, not too long, a guy that's reforming epistemology and it's like, wow, that's really stretching for me. Just analytic philosophy and stuff like that. But also sometimes, you know, also as well to encourage believers on the road. So I'm never condescending that I'm also, okay, I, and able to keep it uh, basic for everybody, right? You could keep it Sesame Street style, Barney style, but also wherever, yeah, every level, okay, is why with that. So I want to encourage you guys, for those guys that are in depth with it, to say, why is this important? Is hopefully even when you guys share later to make this helpful, but also even for our own good, okay, with that.
And I do make it a goal every year. My New Year's resolution is, besides reading a certain amount of apologetics book, is always to read the basics, just so I can know what's out there, what to recommend, and also to sharpen myself with the basics. Even as we're reading, for instance, um, in preparing this series, I want to go, I've been picking certain books out that I really want to go more in depth philosophically with the transcendental argument and, and stretch myself and grow in levels that I have not grown before previously. And even, by the way, as another offshoot of my study, as a background adjacent field to this, I'm also sharpening my logic also as well. And I'm doing it two ways, reading uh, copies, a uh, textbook on logic, and also I'm teaching my daughters uh, logic also as well as part of their homeschool curriculum also as well, just so that it could make it where this will be even be more robust, okay? So let's go on with this. Point number one, what is apologetics? What is apologetics? What I'm going to do, uh, what is apologetics is I'm actually going to split this into two parts. I'm going to look at what do theologians and apologists, how they define it. Um, I'm going to give a lot of quotations here. But if you're taking notes, um, if you, it feels somewhat frustrating, um, remember tonight I'll email this out or maybe very likely early in this morning, like at 5 a.m. or something. I'll email this out um, where it's all footnoted. And also as well... Um, you can just jot down roughly with that and you guys have the more detail with that. And the second part I want to look at more importantly is scripture, the word apologia and its word study with that um, for that. Because we want everything to be driven by scripture, okay? So Christian, um, so what is apologetics? So I want to look at some Christian theologians and apologists, what definitions they give, okay? Now, it would probably come with no surprise for some of you guys that have talked to me about apologetics before or read the blog and stuff like that, is I am a big advocate of what is called presuppositional apologetics, or some of the other name for it is covenantal apologetics. Um, if this is new to you guys, that's okay. Um, we're all learning this together, okay? Um, but nevertheless, when I quote the definition of apologetics, I'm actually going to be not looking only at my own school of apologetics, um, but also look at even uh, diversifying just what is it outside in the greater landscape of evangelical Christianity? How is apologetics defined? Okay, uh, with that. So the first definition I want to look at is a guy named Stephen Cohen. Um, anyone familiar with Stephen Cohen? If not, it's okay. Um, you probably are more familiar if anyone knows him, if you happen not know you, some of you guys who do like apologetics might have known him from the book, one of the books he's edited, called Five Views of Apologetics, part of the Counterpoint series. Anyone familiar with that? Um, five Points of Apologetics. He edited that where there's five different methods of apologetics, and they're arguing. John Frame represent precept. Um, I think Kelly Clark with uh, Gary Habermas with uh, with uh, evidential classicals. William Lane Craig. Kelly Clark, if I remember, was the uh, Reformed Epistemology. Um, and, and there's also um, a cumulative approach, okay? So this is his definition in that book. Uh, he says, Apologetics is concerned with the defense of the Christian faith against charge of falsehood, inconsistency, or cred credulity, okay? Let me repeat this again. Apologetics is concerned with the defense of the Christian faith. I like how he specifies not just the faith, but Christian faith. Apologetics is concerned with the defense of the Christian faith. Against what? He goes on to list three things. Charges of falsehood. Again, charges of falsehood. That is, you know, people say Christianity is just false. There's no truth. Or essentially it's not true. Okay? Inconsistency. That is, there's some kind of double standard that we have. And credulity, right? Like it's not only false, but or maybe they say we don't know for sure if it's false. But the probability of it being believable is not very probable that is christianity is very improbable okay so that's what he's saying it's a defense between these three charge where it's outright false that is it's wrong 
where it's inconsistent where people say, I don't know if it's true or false, but you have within your system an inconsistency, it's destroying itself logically or uh, whether or not it's probable where you say, okay, I don't know if it's true, but it seems very likely it's not going to be true. Okay. That's where Christianity is responding to these three kinds of objections. Another definition, uh, another definition, this one is from Wilbur Smith, okay? Um, it's from a book, Therefore Stand. It's an old apologetics book, older, it's written in 1945. It's just perhaps your traditional kinds of apologetics, uh, uh, evidential kind of apologetics. I think most uh, Christian apologetics is usually the classical or evidential type. Um, the type I'm subscribed to is perhaps a minority. It's called presuppositional, but here's his definition. Um, Again, Wilbur uh, Smith. Wilbur is W-I-L-B-U-R, okay? Smith, and this is what he says. Apologetics, quote, is a verbal defense, a verbal defense, a speech in defense of what one has done, a speech in defense of what one has done, or the truth, or of truth, which one believes, or of truth, which one believes, Okay? Um, even though he's evidential, uh, I would agree that's the essence of uh, apologetics. I think this, these definitions so far is, I think no matter what method you take, there's a sense where we say there's a grain of truth with w what they're saying, or the essence of apologetics is there with the definition. Now, um, I'm going to go to the next definition is John Frame, okay? John Frame. Um, John Frame, by the way, is, is an apologist of life. I used to, I like to tell jokes with people that, hey, guys, you know, I actually co-author a book with John Frame. And then people say, hey, really? Uh, not really. Uh, because a long time ago, when I was a UCLA student, I wrote to him an email. And he's one of those rare apologists that actually answered you, okay? Actually, I didn't even um, email him. I actually wrote him on his Facebook. This is way back in the day when Facebook... Um, was really new in 2000-something. I was in UCLA, and I asked him a question about answering the one and the many, and he answered that. So then he later on wrote a book, What is uh, Why is Philosophy Important, or something like that. It's a small little book. And then in the other half, there's a Q&A, and he actually put that in, and he puts the initial. And I was thinking, this looks so much like my question. His answer was like, and it just says JL. And then I finally dig out on my blog, because I posted an answer. He and I was like, wow, this really was. Um, this was not an email. This was actually from, from a Facebook answer he replied to me. So I used to, I, I like to tell people the joke that I wrote a co-author a book with John Frame, but not really. I just wrote a one question, like what is the one and the many, and could you explain it? And then he explained it, okay? So um, so he's pretty cool in the sense that he answers so many questions that a lot of he's, there's even entire books, like there's like a, volumes of books now um, based upon some of those questions he had. And this is his definition. And I like his definition because it's so simple. And it captures so much in that short definition. He says, apologetics, quote, is the application of scripture to unbelief. Um, is the application of scripture to unbelief. Why I like his definition is it brings in the Bible. He's not doing apologetics in a vacuum, okay? That he brings in the Bible. And there really are Christians that say the Bible has input and authority in every sphere of life, including our intellectual. Why wouldn't we want to bring the scripture? So let me say this again. Apologetics is the application of scripture to unbelief, okay? This is from his book, um, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, okay? Uh, page 87, okay? Um, the Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, which, by the way, for those that's really into theology, I feel like... That book has really changed my life in terms of thinking about theological method, okay? Um, I feel the biggest thing, John, more than anyone else, John Frame has taught me how to think 
um, more than anyone else. It, it, there is a place for Van Til, don't worry. I, I know some of, the, some of you guys love Van Til, right? Uh, Greg Bonson, I still think I'm more Greg Bonson um, in terms of my apologetics method than, than Frame, but, but he's taught me, just because he's lived longer, Greg Bonson died very young with that, okay? Um, so here we see, again, apologetics is the application of Scripture to unbelief. And then uh, point number four, uh, a fourth definition is from Cornelius Van Til. Um, Cornelius Van Til, who's often considered the father of presuppositional apologetics. Um, he's one of the famous, he, he's passed away, but is considered one of the legacy professor of West, Westminster Seminary, where Mandy is attending at this moment, okay? So, Cornelius Van Til says this, Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life. Let me repeat that again. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of of life. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy. Against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy. So he's even making this point. Why I like this definition is there's a part where he's in, acknowledging that when a non-believer comes and attacks Christianity, he's not engaged in a vacuum. There's a lot of things he's bringing and assuming ahead of time what we could even call presuppositions. So he's saying, hey, it's actually not just so simple, any objection. We need to consider worldviews or philosophy or, or outlook of life. Okay, we'll talk about this more um, like five weeks from now. Okay, um, what does that mean? Um, but these are the definitions. Okay, so but more importantly, more than words, um, I don't want to discourage you. If, if you hear a lot of new names, I hope this is not, you see this um, as discouraging, but I encourage you to say, hey, there's a lot more to learn from others. But Ultimately, more importantly, is what we look at the Bible has to say. The word apologetics, by the way, is from the Bible, okay? It comes from the Greek word apologia, okay? Uh, correction, let me say this real quick. The root word for apologetics, apologia, is in the Bible. The word apologetics is not, okay, um, itself. So if you guys can, um, the word apologia, just for you guys to know, it is a Greek word. And the word apologia is mentioned in the New Testament, Okay. It actually, uh, apologetics, again, comes from the word apologia. Um, apologetics or apologia is actually consists of two. It's a compound word. You guys know what a compound word? What is the English example of compound word? Um, butter, butterfly, right? Um, it's a word butter and fly, okay? Um, so with apologetics, it actually comes from a, a compound word with the preposition apo and logia. Logia is often the word like with regards to um, words, okay? It can refer to abstract things also as well, okay? But it, it's words and the word apo, which often is indicating beforehand, or another thing is saying um, because of. It's a preposition. Sometimes you could say, hey, what, why are you doing this? Then you could say apo with that preposition, and then you give basis and reason for what you're doing or why you believe certain things. So taken together, it's a, it means a word giving reason, so to speak. We don't want to engage in a word study fallacy, we want to see, uh, just like the word butterfly, just because you see the word butterfly does not mean it's a it's a fly that's buttery or like butter that happened to fly around, right? We don't want to engage a word study fallacy. But sometimes you see the root explains a bit of its origin for what it's meaning. The word itself, apologia, is about giving reason. And it's often giving reason when it's in the area of legal realm. They should say when people are tried for crime, when you're brought in and say, hey, um, did you do this crime? Then you're going to give reasons for why you you are innocent, okay? Or vice versa. Um, 
in American system, of course, it's reverse, right? It's innocent until proven guilty. The prosecutor or the state has the burden of proof, and they give give it a, a defense or a reason um, for that. Okay, so it's brought from a term within the legal realm. Okay, in the New Testament, this word appear the verbal form. Okay, the verbal form, apologiomai. Okay, it actually uh, is again in the context of legal setting where people are giving reasons for things. Um, and appears in the verbal form appears ten, 10 times, okay? 10 times. How many times? 10 times, okay? Um, eight of those times is by Luke. I really like Luke. Luke seems to be really well, even with his doctor background. He has, he's, man, he's, I, I think his writing of history and the attention to details is amazing. Um, and with that, he's also, I think, very aware of even legal setting. Um, that happens, okay? So he writes it, uh, eight, eight of those times in New Testament is in the is in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, okay? We're going to look at some of those later on. The noun form, the noun form actually appears eight times, okay? Uh, eight times. So 18 times there's this root word of apologetics, um, which is giving a defense that it takes place, okay? So again, let me back up. What is it, if I were to put apologetics in my own word, it's the defense of the Christian faith, okay? Is you're giving reasons why Christianity is, unreason is reasonable, or similar to that, as a corollary, is when someone objects, you're showing that it's unreasonable, the attack oh. against Christianity, okay? And I think there's going to be, um, they're interrelated um, in that dimension. We'll cover that later in point three. So again, uh, point number one, what is apologetics? I think we've answered that. Uh, let's now go to point number two. Why apologetics? Why should you as a Christian engage in apologetics? Some of us might think apologetics is something that an expert, a professional does, right? A professional and an expert does. Or someone that maybe likes being argumentative, likes arguing, likes debating. And then some of us might say, you know what, Jimmy, I'm not really the argumentative type. I'm, I'm more quiet. Or, or I'm not like guys that really like philosophy. I just love my Bible. Um, but still, I think there might be different levels of gifting. There might be levels of how we engage in apologetics. Um, that does not necessarily mean you are able to engage with everyone in the fullest capacity um, every time. But I do think there's a general responsibility for believers to engage in apologetics. Okay, So why apologetics? So remember this, these points. And if somehow as we go through this series the next few weeks and months and you feel like, wait, why are we doing all this? Um, lesson one with the audio, I think maybe it'd be a good refresher sometimes to say, why is that? Okay. And by the way, the reason why we engage in apologetics is also going to shape later on with point three, that as we consider uh, why we do apologetics, we're going to see hey, apologetics has two sides to this and also what apologetics is not. Okay. So I'm going to give go over tonight, uh, five reasons why apologetics, why you as a believer, like all of us as believers, why we have this duty of apologetics to defend the faith and even uh, as a corollary to even study to learn to defend the faith okay um, by the way i do think apologetics is multifaceted um so when we think of defending the faith i think most of us right away think about oh science right we scientists or or history um but there's other areas that perhaps some of us might not have thought about before areas like philosophy um areas such as even i think of his uh, even uh there's social, sociological or social sciences also as well, okay? And in light of that, I think all, all of us will not, might not be an expert in every area, 
But whatever sphere you're gifted in, that's where you're called to say, okay, you could be make a contribution or you could be more gifted in this area. For instance, I don't think I'm a guy that really knows science as in depth as some of you guys. I think some of you guys knows in this group right now far more. I remember when Chris emailed me his, his thesis, I don't even know what it was talking about. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna pretend to be someone that knows, right? Some of you guys are far better in Old Testament, right? Far better, and this is where I need you guys too with the input. So I want to even see with all this, in order to bring this together, community, we need to see first and foremost why all of us, no matter your disposition and gifting, why all of us has a role of apologetics. Okay. So reason number one, it is commanded. Okay. Why apologetics? Reason number one. So again, we're looking at point number two. Why apologetics? A sub reason. A sub point is we're going to look at five reason. Reason number one, it is commanded. Turn with me real quick to First Peter three fifteen. 1 Peter 3.15, okay? 1 Peter 3.15. When we get there, so I could catch my breath, with 1 Peter 3.15, could I have um, Chris in Motivated Big Boy Voice read me 1 Peter 3.15? Can you hear me? Uh, uh, I did not hear you earlier, sorry. You might have been muted, brother. Oh, sorry. Um, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. For the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Amen. Okay. Um, First Peter, by the way, I think I love that book. Um, man. I think First Peter is quite relevant for our day as I actually think the possibility of Christian persecution is going to increase around the world, including in the, in the States. But in light of this, I think this is about how do we live in light of these things and still thrive as believers. Um, and part of that is even in the context, it's talking about suffering and persecution. But it, I love how even in the midst of all this, he doesn't say, hey, didn't, you don't share anything about your Christianity. But we are to be what? Share the gospel. Okay, share the gospel also as well okay but not only share the gospel this verse i think is often called the constitution for christian apologetics because uh when you see here when it says always being ready to make a defense always being ready to make a defense the greek word there is apologia okay so again the context is legal defense okay and it's saying okay you got to give a reason for why anyone asks you why you are a christian okay and by the way, in the middle of, if, in the context, what's going on, it is talking about these believers are persecuted. If you look with me in 1 Peter 3.14, the verse right before this, what does it say? It says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, so this is a context where non-believers are engaging you. Part of it, they're not only really mocking you. They might even say Christianity is unreasonable. So verse 14 says, when someone's mocking you, then you are, you need to consider it's blessed when they mock you. But also, that doesn't mean you just mock it and say, oh yeah, Christianity is really, really dumb and it's lame. No, you don't do that. Verses 15 also says, hey, take the insult, personal insult. But verse 15, what? When it comes to the objective, truth, veracity of Christianity, there's a responsibility. You're called to give a reason for the hope that you have, okay? Looking at this verse, let's answer the question, who? And also the question, when and where, okay? The question is who, like I said earlier, is these are believers. Believers are called to give a reason for what they believe in, okay? Um, that you are to give a reason, okay? But look also, uh, when the question of when do you engage this, notice this is whenever everyone asks you to give an account for the hope that you have, okay? 
Um, as I grow more as a Christian, I think there's always places to present off, uh, apologetics. But I think the staple, usually my apologetics, is was when people press attack me or when they ask. Okay, when I was younger, I was so eager to always do apologetics, right? Um, but as I grow older, I feel like apologetics is almost like a it's almost like a weapons platform. Like even when we were, for instance, going to Iraq, you don't blow up every single thing you see, right? Um, like in the invasion when when our brother Jin um, was in, they didn't shoot at everything. Not even every Iraqi. It's only those that. Um, Iraqi uh, military that was shooting at them. They did not even shoot the regular Iraqi military because they didn't want to waste bullets. And and also because, more importantly, people's lives are at stake, right? That makes sense? So in the same way, I feel apologetics as a grow more. I just share the gospel. I'm trying to share the gospel to everything that lives and breathes, okay? But in the midst of that, when someone object or say, why do you believe it's reasonable? Then I would go and engage in apologetics, okay? So when, as it says here, is... Uh, to ev uh, everyone who asks you an opportunity for the hope that is in you, okay? That's one opportunity. By the way, I do think there's an opportunity also when there's false teachers, actively t false teaching. Other passages will consider. But at least one of the contexts you see is when people ask you, you have responsibility. It should not be when someone asks you, then you say, you know what? Um, here, I'm going to go tag Jimmy, okay? 2020 was a crazy year for me. Um, and, and I think it was a crazy year for all of us. But 2020, I felt, man, I lost so many sleep because it was like, man, the whole world was going crazy. There was a lot of attack on Christianity. There was a lot of also even questions about what is a Christian view of social justice or social science or soci sociologically. What is a Christian view of state and society? And I was like, man, I felt like it was being attacked. Now, I love doing those things. But before we outsource it, right, before we find mercenaries, so to speak, we also need to realize all of us have a responsibility to be able to defend the faith. And sure, there's a place to go to older believers or believers that might know more, but you have a responsibility to also learn, okay? You guys realize sometimes, even with apologetics, and I get this sometimes too, where someone comes up to me and say, hey, Jimmy, I have a family member um, who does not believe. What apologetics book would you recommend me? Before, when I was young, I would always right away sell all these books. And then in the past, I've, as I grow more older, I ask later on, I say, wait, who is this? When you ask for these books, who are these books for? For you or for them directly? And I do think there's a place to get books for individuals. But also at the same time, I mean, let's be honest. How many books, how many, I know some of you guys love giving books to others. How many times when we give gifts of books to others that sometimes even Christians don't even read what we give them, right? How much more, and I would also try to encourage the believers, like, hey, don't just right away give the books to the other believers and think like, okay, I've dust off my feet, I've fulfilled my responsibility. Again, I'm not taking the opportunity to say, don't do this. There's places for that. But also primarily see this is an opportunity for you to read, to then learn from it, and then to go and answer. Sometimes that's more effective because the likelihood of a non-believer reading is probably even less uh, and then again, even very sincere Christians sometimes because of busyness of life. I don't want to be uncharitable. Um, sometimes there's many things they're reading. Perhaps they might not get to it. So how much more we have the responsibility first. Like First Peter 3.15, we read this and then therefore we give an answer. Okay? So whenever we are asked and where? Any moment. Okay? Always being ready. Okay? Always being ready any moment. Okay? We realize there's spiritual warfare. We need to be, always be ready. Right? If you guys know anything of the Coast Guard, one of their motto is what? Semper preparatus, whatever, always being ready any moment to respond uh, with this. Okay, so we have this responsibility with that. So that's one. This verse here shows we are commanded to give an apologetics. Another one is turn with me real quick to Titus 1 9. When we get to Titus 1 9, 
um, Titus 1.9. When we are there in Titus 1.9, if you guys could, um, if I could have then, um, Mandy, sister, would you be able to read that out loud for us? And the next one I'll ask is Mrs. Burton. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Yeah, thank you so much for reading. In the context, Titus 1 is giving qualifications for an elder, for an overseer or an elder in the church or even what we now functionally call um, in English vernacular pastors, right? Um, but with the elders of the church, notice the qualification. There's many moral ones. But the ones in terms of capabilities is twofold. He's able to teach the Word of God. That is, teach what Scripture actually says and then to apply it and to encourage people to, to believe the right thing and to live out the right way. But notice there's another element to this is what? Um, the, another element is actually to refute those who contradict it. That is, those that goes with wrong doctrine. There's an apologetics element. Defending the Christian faith is also to show where there's something wrong. Okay, And that's a qualification of a believer. Now, I actually think Titus 1, the qualification of elders, should be characters for every Christians, true or not. If we read Titus 1 and says, you know what, a believer should not be self-willed. Only pastors should be self-willed. Would you say that's the right application of Titus 1-7? No, right? If we say a believer, oh, you know what, um, a pastor should not be quick-tempered. But everyday believer is okay. It's, it doesn't matter. Then you would say that's the wrong application. I actually think the standard of what God wants for pastors um, in terms of the content is the same for all believers. But they're called to stricter, um, that they definitely have shown um, ex um, proof that they're living this out as a good example. Okay, So in light of this, I actually think also the same way. Christians, we all have the responsibility. It is a positive Christian uh, attribute to be able to respond and refute false teaching and errors also as well. Wrong doctrines, wrong worldviews. Um, this is not only true for pastors, but it's also true for all believers. And this is actually should be one of the qualification for a pastor. I hope whatever church we're at, we also consider, is our pastor one who's able to guard the sheep from wolves by actually showing things are wrong? In other words, we're not just looking for whether or not he wore tight jeans, put more stuff in his hair, he's cool or, you know, hipster, right? Whether or not his pulpit is a glass little thing, right? Or whether or not he wears sandals going up there and he wear a Hawaiian shirt. You feeling me? Okay. Well, he looks more like a, what, Huntington Beach, Southern California beach bum more than actually, what, a, a, a pastor, Okay. Here we see the responsibility is with that, okay? And by the way, in light of this, I also want to show you there's verses where we see there's examples where believers are also argued. If there's verses that show that there's example of believers. Now, even when we read the narrative, there's sometimes a dimension that there are examples we are to follow, okay? Uh, of course, we read that from the Word of God. But if God's Word already says, hey, there's a place of role for that, then whenever we read arguments in the book of Acts with believers where it says they argued, that shows that it reinforced, it velcro and fortify my point number one, that we're called to what? To engage in apologetics. If you guys can, real quick me, with me, open up to the book of Acts, okay? And uh, I'm going to see all throughout Acts this truth, okay? If you guys are with me in Acts, um, oh, let's see which one. Uh, Acts 15.2, okay? When Paul and Barnabas had great dissensions and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some other, other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles concerning this issue. So notice, Paul and Barnabas, they were debating. Some of your versions says debate, some of your versions say arguing. For the sake of sound doctrine, they were engaged in 
refuting the Judaizers, right? Those that say he had to go by the law. Okay, it, Acts 15, 7 says that again. Okay, Mrs. Burton, now we're going to go to outside of just doctrinal within the church context. Now we're going to see an evangelistic use of uh, reasoning and apologetics. Mrs. Burton, would you be able to read for us Acts 17, 17? So let's all of us go to Acts 17, 17. All right, Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned and argued in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship there and in the marketplace where assemblies are held day after day with any who chance to be there. Amen. Thank you for reading that. In the Amplified Version, notice the details here, right? Um, Paul was arguing, or some of your version either says arguing or reasoning. He's engaged in this. These are good examples of what he's engaging. He's witnessing, okay? You ever wonder why all of us, most of us today, are all pig-eating Gentiles, right? We all like either, you know, pork dim sum if you're Asian or, 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 you know, why we like El Pastor tacos. Like, why is that today the church has made up so many pig-eating Gentiles, myself included, guilty as charged? It's because Paul went and he witnessed to what? To all people, right? And I'm so glad he went, engaged in apologetics, with God-fearing Gentiles and, and with Jews. And of course, later on in Acts, he goes to what? Even the Greek philosophers and engage them in Mars Hill, okay? So you see that, okay? Acts 18.4, Acts 18.4. Um, real quick, could I have, um, Jesus, would you be able to read Acts 18.4? Real quick. You said Acts 18.4? Yes, sir. It says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Okay, amen. Okay, thank you so much for reading that, right? This is describing what Paul did. If you remember, Paul was in Athens in Acts 17. Then he went, and when he did, he went to Corinth. Um, of course, later on, he'll write two letters to them, right? But here, he also see, then later on, he, uh, you know, he even uh, moved on, right? And you see that he was engaged in apologetics, persuading from the scripture, arguing that what that Jesus definitely is the Messiah, okay? Let's go to reason number two. If the first reason is we're commanded, I'm going to try to pick up the pace a little bit. Reason number two is we want to engage in apologetics is also to encourage other believers. Is to encourage other believers. Now I know as I'm going through this, I think some of us might even think in our minds, perhaps during these uh, the last 30 minutes or so, Realizing, hey, you know, a lot of times apologetics, there's a, there is a place, Jimmy, you're right, but there's a limitation. I wonder if Jimmy's going to acknowledge that. And I do acknowledge that. There is a limitation. It does not mean that every time you engage in apologetics, the non-believer will always be saved right away or believe you or raise his hand up in defeat. But reason number two is also, I think this is a dimension we must never forget. Sometimes apologetics also is meant to encourage other believers, Okay. The metric is not only whether or not someone gets refuted and they say, I give up. The metric is not even only just like, oh, whether they're safe. But don't forget another encouraging uh, metric for believers is to encourage other believers. So if you're in book of Acts 18, um, Acts 18, um, when I, uh, you know how I remember we began this series I mentioned about uh, earlier today about how I used to have an apologetics syllabus when I used to teach uh, campus evangelism. I used to have a syllabus looking at the character of um, of a humble apologist from Apollos in Acts 18. Unfortunately, I don't have this saved anymore. But in Acts 18, I think you see this young man named Apollos, right? He goes out there. If you look in verses 24, 
He's from an he's an Alexandrian from the city of where Alexandria. Alexandria, by the way, back in the day, had the biggest library in the world. If you guys remember, unfortunately, it was burned down later on. Okay, and it was a city that was known for a lot of scholarly stuff, also as well, right? But here he is. It mentioned he's eloquent man. He went to Ephesus right when Paul just left there, and he went. He was. It says he was mighty in scripture. But did you notice what he did in verses twenty five and twenty six? He ended up debating. Those that say in the synagogue said, no, like Jesus is not the Messiah and they're twisting the word of God. And he's responding very well. Okay. Even though he was what? A young man. Okay. And notice when you look here, notice when he did all this, it didn't mean necessarily everyone that he argued with became a believer. The text didn't focus on that. Instead, the focus was on the, the, the consequence. One of the good results is in verse 27. And when he went to go across the Kia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Think about this. He's in Ephesus, and when he's going to go to another area, they were so encouraged by his apologetics. They said, you know, we're going to write a letter of recommendation that when you get there, we already tell him, already the foot is the door, that, hey, you're someone that is mighty in the scriptures, mighty in apologetics, refuting things that are wrong and objections against Christianity. Okay? And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believe through grace. Notice the um, emphasis is on the Christian benefits, the believer's benefit of apologetics, that these believers will greatly encourage. Um, sometimes when we get into apologetics, even when I do online, um, you guys ever have those that are very rude and nasty? Sometimes what helps me in my sanctification to always be polite is always realize whenever you engage with somebody, even if someone you disagree with, to always be polite because there's always sometimes someone out there that's always looking. Whether on Facebook, whether on Twitter, whether on WordPress, right? So that sometimes it's actually to encourage other believers, okay? Or even non-believers to say, hey, maybe there's something there. I need to slow down. It's not as easy as we think. So we need to realize to encourage other believers, okay, um, with that is also one of the aims, okay? Amen. And like what Mrs. Burns said also, right? His aim was incomplete and yet he was willing to what? He was willing to learn, okay? So that's another characteristic because later on, uh, Priscilla and Aquila in verse 26 pulled him aside and he was willing to learn, right? I mean, think about this. This guy knew so much scripture that later on, there'll be a problem in the church in Corinth. The church was shallow. They were looking at who knows more. I remember how Paul uh, wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, like, hey, you said you're of Apollos, you're of Paul. I remember all those things. You know, he talked about he planted seed and Apollos water. Like, how did Apollos water? This guy's knowledge is so great. Of course, Paul, Apollos himself was humble. But it's unfortunately, it's fanboy celebrity syndrome does not only exist on Twitter. It existed in the first century back then also as well. The Christian dilemma of loving making what celebrity syndromes existed way back then right so in the same way paul said hey none of this we follow christ but nevertheless apollos was a gifted guy but yet he was humble that's a good characteristic and this actually encouraged other believers okay encourage other believers let us also learn more to encourage other believers answer their question but also let them say hey you know what by the way when we do this apologies you guys know there's always in church people that might not be able to know a lot now our church, we do have quite a bit of number of special needs, right? Special needs. Sometimes the special needs guys go to college. And there have been times where some of our special needs guys say, Hey, Jimmy, I just went to this class and they made fun of Christianity. I don't know what to do. Then I could just at least talk to them. But this is where we have to also know to have the skill to explain things Barney style. I don't go to Phil and I don't go to Josh and say, Hey, you know what? There's something called epistemology. And did you know that, you know what? There is in UC Berkeley, there's this guy that talked about the trans. That's where I, I'm not going to engage in that. This is where 
we have to give analogies, a lot of illustrations to make sense, right? I'm not going to be talking to them uh, uh, about, you know, different kind of infinites, right? Actual infinites and finite infinites. I'm going to be explaining these things as Barney style as possible, okay? To encourage them. And when they don't know some of the things, they say, hey, there's a whole flooded field, all these things. They're like, oh, wow, Jimmy, there's a lot of things that sometimes you guys talk about on Tuesdays that's so deep, but I know the faith is true. I know the faith is true. Even if I can't get everything. I know from what you guys are talking about, this is not made up, that there's enough of it. It's so deeper than I thought. And when other people make fun of Christianity, I know, man, they should come to Bible study to see it's far more deeper than people realize in attacking, okay? So let's be all of us encouraged with your different areas, your different knowledge, whether Old Testament, whether in theology, whether in science, whatever else, okay? Reason number three is to challenge unbelief. Look with me at uh, verse 28 again. Acts uh, 18, 28 says, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scripture that Jesus was the Christ. The reason why they're encouraged is because there's the other side of apologetics. He's challenging unbelief. Okay? Just a mere challenging. I, I know sometimes you hear the same, right? Um, you don't want to win arguments. You want to win the person. That actually has a grain of truth, right? Um, you don't want to be a jerk, Right? And then the person's turned off, and even believers. That's also, that's not what you want to do. But at the same time, be careful of making that as an absolute statement where your goal becomes you never win any intellectual exchange. That also, I think, might not always glorify God. And sometimes I think it's important to realize even whatever the person's response is, even if you were to challenge their unbelief and show there's problems with it, there's an incredible thing that's also why we engage in that. I think a good example of that, if you guys ever want to have time to look it up, is the Gordon Stein, Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein debate. If you ever want to see that, now I don't think Gordon Stein ever got saved. Uh, he's the atheist that challenged uh, Greg Bonson. I think it's probably, now my personal opinion, uh, the best debate is actually for me is another, best debate and apologetics I ever heard about God's existence, Greg Bonson versus Edward Tabash. That one is a little less known, but everyone always talk about the Gordon Stein debate. Um, but in that debate, he, you know, Gord, uh, Edward Tabash, I don't think he ever converted. But nevertheless, you see very clearly, wow, here is the guy that's trying to mount, a, P, a guy with a PhD, trying to mount an attack against Christianity, and it becomes reduced to rubbles, to the point that even in, and it took place in 1985 or 86 at UC Irvine, okay? And in that debate, you even hear the audience, which was mixed with a lot of non-believers, were even laughing at the skeptic. Now, again, it's not about laughter, but it just becomes reduced to such... Um, absurdity, okay? So reason number three is a challenge unbelief, okay? As we see in Acts 18, 28. Let's go to reason number four. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Is also the evangelize unbelievers, right? It's the evangelize unbelievers, okay? I hope our apologetics is not just only slam dunk and we show people they're foolish, but there should be a part of us as Christians. We want non-believers to know the truth. If you guys look with me at Acts 17, Acts 17, a lot of apologists love to go to this verse this is the Mars Hill where Paul went and he evangelizes to all these philosophers, the Epicureans and Stoics philosophers, okay? And if you look after he's done evangelizing, notice in Acts 17 verse 34. Different commentaries take different interpretation. Some commentaries say Paul was unsuccessful. He shouldn't have engaged in this. Because they say verse 20, 34 where it says, Some joined them and believed. Among them was Dionysus and a woman named Darius. Uh, Darmius and others with them. Some would say Paul failed, but I actually think Paul did not fail. 
because the fact that some of them even believed was incredible. Notice, as a result of his apologetics endeavor and his evangelism, and engaging even laying down the foundation of what is Christian worldview to interpret the, the resurrection, you see some believed, and therefore they were evangelized, and the fruit of evangelism uh, and apologetics. So I think for us, it's not just only to cut down arguments and everything else, but part of it is also hopefully we are also trying to share the gospel as one of the reasons why we're engaged in this, okay? Let's go to reason number five, is to glorify God. Is to glorify God, okay? First Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so I could catch my breath. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Um, Kike, would you be able to read that for us? 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. If it's not convenient right now, just give me a thumbs down. Oh, you can't. Okay, I see that. Okay. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. I'll just read this. I'm, I'm sorry. I should have asked ahead of time. It says, whatever you drink, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. When I was younger... Um, I used when I was in the Marines. I used to call this the McDonald's verse because there was a time where I can't do this anymore. There was a time I ate a Big Mac for like every single day, right? And I did an empirical study. I was like, hmm, I'm gonna grab Eric's brother, Eric Hall, his brother. He's gonna be my control to see if he gains weight and if I gain weight. And I didn't gain weight. And I used to love this verse because people say, my sister would say, it's, "You're so gross. If you eat McDonald's every day, you're gonna die of a heart attack. Instead of a Big Mac, you get a big attack, right?" But I love this verse because whatever you eat or drink, you do it for the glory of God. Uh, obviously, I can't do that anymore. Not at, not at my age. Or ever. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink, you should do it for the glory of God. How much more of you should do apologetics, right? So all of this is also to glorify God. That's the fifth reason. By the way, if it's for the glory of God, that shapes everything else with the other reason, right? That when you, you, when you are engaged, it's commanded. You obey because you want to glorify God. That's why you do apologetics. You want to encourage other believers, but then... To encourage other believers, you want to encourage them in such a way that God is glorified. And reason number three, right? If you're to challenge your belief, you want to do it in such a way that God is glorified, right? And number four is you, if you want to evangelize non-believers, you want to do it in such a way that God is glorified, right? Rather than just giving in to what they think is reasonable, that kind of thing. Which then we see here from all this, point number three, and this one is going to be a little quicker, is we see from this is two sides of apologetics. Point number three is we see two sides of apologetics. Now, if one point number one is we see apologetics is defense of the faith. And point number two, we saw these five reasons, right? Consider, remember, some of those reasons for defending uh, the Christian faith is we saw is to encourage believers and to challenge unbelievers, right? If that's the case, it's true, then you see there's two sides of apologetics, what we call the defense and the offense, okay? Defense and offense. Um, what I mean by defense and offense is the following. When we look at, uh, when we consider apologetics, um, there's a defense when sometimes people, a de defense would mean when people object to Christianity, you show their objection is unreasonable. Okay, that's what we mean by defense. That when they consider the veracity of Christianity, their, their attack on, on the merit of Christianity, when they say it's unreasonable, then you look and say, okay, you know what? Their offense itself, their, their arguments and objection against Christianity is unreasonable. Okay? Uh, is unreasonable. This is a biblical thing. For instance, um, if you guys could turn with me in Acts chapter 2. Do you guys remember Acts chapter 2? In the day of Pentecost, remember when they spoke in tongues in the, in the book of Acts chapter 2? 
uh, when they did, and some when they were speaking all these languages, remember there's some that would say, hey, this is not supernatural. This is not God's supernatural pouring the Holy Spirit. Rather, these men are drunk, okay? And do you remember what Paul, uh, Peter did when he stood up in Acts 2.13? Others were mocking and saying they were full of sweet wine. In verses 14 to 15, Peter is taking his stand with the eleven, raises his voice and declares the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my word. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. He's saying they're not drunk because it's too early in the morning to be drunk. Okay, so he's giving, he's removing that objection. He's like, that's not reasonable, unreasonable itself, right? So there is an element where you're removing the defense of uh, one side of apologetics defenses where you're answering the objection of unbelief or you're showing their attack is unreasonable so if some of you guys follow the blog this is where once a week i answer bible contradiction right looking at the skeptics where they say it is a bible contradiction it says hey, let's look let's look at this remember the definition of what a non-contradiction is and then let's look at it evaluate let's look in its context that he did, did they quoted it actually that the interpretation is accurate and if they're accurate are they actually logically incompatible Okay, and you answer that. But if you ever look at those outlines, also the last point I go on the offense, where we say, hey, in light of your worldview, if you believe atheism is true, you don't even have the law of non-contradiction. Okay, so there's not apologetics as defense, but this, the second part is apologetics as offense. This aspect deals with attacking and exposing the foolishness of unbelief. Okay, um, for this verse, turn with me in Second Corinthians ten five. 2 Corinthians ten five. Oh man, I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit faster. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Uh, I'll read this for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians 10.5. This is what the Word of God says, okay? 2 Corinthians 10.5. We are destroying speculation and every lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every captive uh, to the obedience, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where you examine what they believe in. This is an imagery of two fortresses, so to, so to speak, right? You're building a fortress. You know, it's a military language terminology, right? Two fortresses, and they're shooting at each other and everything else. And, and you're saying, okay, the other ones need to be taken, what? Captive to Christ. And their speculation that goes against them. They're saying, okay, this is uh, whatever it is. This is their belief. You're showing A. You're refuting it, right? You're destroying it, okay, uh, with that. So I think there is that element also as well. Now, this is where, in terms of apologetics method, I think in other schools, these two are almost so loose. They're two different things. But I actually think in presuppositionalism, you bring it all together by saying, as we go over the next few weeks, that no evidence and discussion ever happened in a vacuum. They're always behind it. There's an undercurrent of worldviews. Okay, with that. We'll talk more about that in a bit uh, or in a few weeks from now. Okay, but let's go to point number four. I want to consider what apologetics is not, okay? So in light of what we've all seen, um, what apologetics is not, again, the reason why I'm going over this is because sometimes in the past when I've taught similar things like this, people come and say, that's good, you show all these things, but I still don't think it's apologetics. We should do that. When they ask them, hey, why not? Then I often hear what they describe. It's not that apologetics in of itself is wrong, the essence of it, but they then caricature what apologetics is, okay? First and foremost uh, example is people say things like, Apologetics, let me say this, is not being rude, okay? People sometimes say, oh, I don't like apologetics. I don't want to engage you because... And I say, okay, why is that? Well, apologetics is rude. Well, apologetics is not being rude. Remember First Peter 3.15. I'll read this real quick. The end of First Peter 3.15, it says, um, but with gentleness and respect, we are to engage in apologetics in a way that's gentle and with respect, okay? 
I personally think a lot of classical guys abuse that verse, or, or um, the word with res uh, respect is fear. And I actually think that's more fear of God, that you submit to Him instead of engaging in, in, in autonomy, doing things your own way, man-centered way. I actually think it's respecting God. You've got to show respect, gentleness with other people. You can't cuss them out, right? You can't be, be mean and condescending. But also, you must be reverential. That's the word fear means, towards God, okay? But here we see, definitely, apologetics is not being rude, okay? And apologetics we could do um, in a way that in God's view, is is not being rude. Let me say this real quick. Sometimes non-believers will attack us and say you're being rude just by telling the truth. But in God's view, I think there's ways we could do it without being. Although be cautious too. Realize the non-believers will always say you're going to be rude, okay? Because uh, there, there's something that hurts because you're saying your core beliefs is wrong, right? Just like they say with us, then I'm going to also be, okay, I'm going to say why. I'm going to be engaged in, in this, okay? Apologetics also as well is not saying sorry, okay? Apologetics is not saying sorry. I know you hear the word apologia, we think of right away apologize, okay? But originally the word apologize in the old English meaning is sometimes when you, you guys ever see celebrities when they apologize and they don't really mean it? You ever see certain celebrities when they say something really like, oh, I can't believe they said that. Wow, that's so wrong. And they say, well, I'm sorry you feel this way. And you're like, wait, that's not a true apology. That's not a true apology. You're just, you're saying, you're, you're gaslighting. You're, you're now saying, you, you, you are, it's more my fault than I misunderstand you. That's not a true apology. So that's an example of an apologia in the sense they're still defending themselves, okay? Now, of course, the meaning of apologia over time, you know, apologize, change, right? Just like the word villain. You guys know the word villain, bad guys? Originally in, in German, came from German, which means someone that owns land, villas, right? Then, of course, you know, they, you know, they thought of them badly, but over time, the word changed. It has nothing to do. So in the same word, because word changes, um, over time, even um, in ways not its original etymological root, right? Same thing, apologize that, so we don't want to make this mistake. But I want to mention this too, because there are people today in a post-2020 world that think apologetics, like actual defense of the faith, means going out there and saying sorry for everything that Christianity, you're saying sorry for Christianity. There are people out there um, in the crowd that's typically woke and, and all that stuff, would say, you know what, I want to apologize for the crusade, for all these other things and all that stuff. But that's what I don't think is the essence of Christianity, okay? And uh, secondly, uh, apologetics is not to show you're smarter. It's not to show Christians are smarter, okay? Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Um, when Paul says, hey, where's the wise man? In verses 20, where's the scribe? Right? And he also mentioned here clearly, um, verses 26, Consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So our goal is not to show Christians are the most smartest people in the world. Because First Corinthians 26 says, not many are. And I love that when he says not many are. That also shows there's room of grace that some are. Right? But your goal is not to say we're the smartest one. And by the way, no matter how smart we are, there's always someone that's smarter than us. That is a non-believer. So I think that's a goal is not even to show that. So I, I feel when you know this, that for me brings less pride in, in, in my apologetics. And pride is often a downfall, right? In debate, you tunnel vision. When you think, oh, you got to be the best, you will. Then guess what happened? Man, um, at least in the military, I've never felt, uh, I know Marines talk a lot of smack, but I never felt it was good in real world is, hey, even strong, good soldiers die. I feel the most humbling thing is sometimes in the military, right? I mean, even like you look at the war right now, Ukraine, um, the first few days, the the Russians used some of their VDD or VDV, their their, their um, paratroopers, some of the best, and they're just getting wiped out, like entire units at a time. You're like, what? That whole you, how? That's like 
What I'm trying to say, by the way, it's possible for anyone. It could be possible for Americans. It could be, you know, look at how many units got wiped out in World War II in the storming beaches, right? What I'm trying to say is this. They're not a pride issue. Pride also tunnel vision. So the goal is just to say, no matter how smart they are, you're, you're, you're smart, they're smart, whatever. It's just saying, hey, this is what I still think is irrational. And by the way, some of the smartest people that specialize in very area could be also really bad in other areas. How many people we could think of ivory tower scholars good in one area, but then, man, they could be messed up spiritually. Or they could be really unwise in other areas. They could be really good with science in a very narrow of, of neuroscience. But then when it comes to public policy, you're like, wow, how come that didn't transfer? Does that make sense? Specialization and being good in something don't mean your whole worldview. You're, you're smart. Okay, let me stop at this point here.